This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. I was writing a blog post last week, and I was like, how does this get published? I, I know it was like too lazy to dig around in the code to find that hook, but now I, now I understand. Yes. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, I could have read the readme too, but... Um. <laughs> Hi, Gabe. Hi, Lila. Hello, and welcome to Bike Shed Open Mic with ThoughtBot's San Francisco team. Sean and Derek are in Kansas City at RailsConf this week. So today I'm going to be talking to some of my teammates here in San Francisco about what they've been working on lately. So, uh, Gabe, how's your day going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. I understand that you recently learned a lot about emoji and UTF-8. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that that sudden passion for UTF-8 <laughs> and emoji and where that was coming from? Sure. The sudden passion for emoji came from having a lot of errors on a site I run. So I run a site called Chroniker that changes people's Twitter username and profile on a schedule. Like buffer, but for information about your Twitter profile, not for actual tweets. Okay, cool. And just to clarify, Chroniker is a pun. Yes. <laughs> a play on the words cron and moniker. Yes. Okay. <laughs> cool. Exactly. I love it. I love it. So one day I put in, I scheduled a username that was all emoji. And then <laughs> I noticed that it didn't get sent to Twitter when I logged in. So I checked the logs and I saw an error message from Twitter saying that the username was blank, which was curious because it was not blank, I had entered a bunch of emoji. So I took a deep dive into Twitter's rules about this and on the way I learned a lot about emoji and the f kind of filtering that Twitter does. So when this failure first occurred, what, did, what was the name set as? What, was it actually set or was the change just rejected? It was set and the change was, oh, I see. It just didn't happen. Okay, yes. yeah, it just said this is totally invalid. Right. Where, yeah, okay. I so see. if I had done it on the web app, I would have seen an error message. Got but it. But because the times were delayed, because I had scheduled it for the future, it was just in the logs. Right. So it sounds like you probably gained some pretty general knowledge about emoji and UTF-8, but it was for the specific purpose of doing it on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. So what did you learn? So I learned that specific to Twitter's rules, which are opaque and not written down anywhere and were mostly learned by trial and error, uh, plus a helpful person on Twitter who does not work for Twitter, uh, Twitter removes some but not all emoji. So one of the more interesting things I learned is that it removes some emoji but not others. Hmm. So I had a bunch of questions about why that was happening. So wait, can you give me an example? If I want my name to show up as Sparkling Heart, would that work? I think that Sparkling Heart would not work. What? But Heart <laughs> would, okay. as would Umbrella and Lightning Bolt. Okay, okay. So those are some good examples. So why would the example <laughs> of Sparkling Heart not work? Uh, so it has to do with the Unicode code points for each emoji. Okay. Which I think leads to some <laughs> other questions. It did for me, yeah. certainly. 
So what, what it does, so the, the actual rule is Twitter removes some fancy non-printing white space characters, I learned, which I think is not really a problem in general because being non-printing, they're very hard to type. Mm -hmm. And it also removes characters that are outside of the Unicode basic multilingual plane. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. I, am, I, yeah, I don't know what characters those might be. Right. Do you? Um, I've learned. Okay. Um, or at least I've learned how to detect it. Yeah. So uh, the basic multilingual plane is where most characters that people use are located. Okay. So not in the ASCII sense of like things that most people use, which was really things that people who speak English and some European languages use, but like actually most of the languages in the world today are in that plane. So right. there are other planes called unofficially and very, I think, coolly mm. astral planes, Okay. which I love. Yeah. Um, and that's where like a bunch of extra stuff is, okay. as I understand it. Okay. So the... Um the, like the normal plane, what was it called? The, the basic multilingual basic, plane. We could just say BMP. We should BMP. probably just say BMP. Okay, yeah. So that includes like English and Korean and like yes. normal languages. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm worried, <laughs> I'm worried about saying normal languages just in case there are some that are like not included. Right, right. But it includes uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean characters. It includes... Vedic extensions. Mm. Um, okay. Just reading from Wikipedia. Yeah. Now. It includes a lot of languages that I've never seen before, <laughs> quite honestly. So the point is that that plane inc includes code points. So code points are just numbers. How they're encoded into like actual characters on your computer mm. changes depending on the implementation. So it's like the platonic ideal of a number yep. and how your computer represents that could be totally different, but like you need a way to map it to a code point. Does this have to do with why emojis look different on different platforms? It does not. Well, so it sort of does in that like Unicode doesn't specify how to represent them. Right. It just provides guidelines. Okay. So, but that, that enco the encoding step is different from the like rendering. Right. Yeah. So there, there are standards for both, but there's room right. for artistic right. license. Exactly. So the uh, code points are represented as hex numbers. And the BMP is U plus zero. So like just zero to U plus FFFF. Okay. <laughs> and everything above that is outside the plane. So it turns out some emoji are really like just code points that people and operating systems decided to represent as pictures. Mm-hmm. So like iOS and Android decided to represent some code points as actual pictures. So the heart, for example, is actually like well within the basic multilingual plane. It might even be in like, you know, Latin, like ASCII or something. It's, right. it's just like, yeah, like you've yeah. probably, you may have seen it like a little black heart. Yeah, totally. That, mm. And then when Apple sees that code point, it's like, oh, I'll make this a cool picture instead. Mm -hmm. And that's how they decide to render it. Mm-hmm. And other emoji that were added later, once I think emoji sort of picked up steam and people were like, people love emoji. Let's add some new ones. Do you know, just, you know, sure. historical questions, do you know when that inflection point was? I think recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think after, so emoji, I think, were popular in Japan yeah, that's before what I've heard. iOS happened. Uh huh. 
and they were like rendered by like SMS carriers in Japan. And then Apple sort of took that and expanded it. And then people were like, oh my God, I love emoji. Mm -hmm. And then other P other systems like Android and also I think like Firefox them. OS are like yeah. rendering some characters as emoji now. Yeah. I don't have data to back this up. I'm going to say definitely after 2000, maybe in the past five to 10 years. Yeah. Probably. Anecdotally, it seems That seems consistent. right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, once they added a lot of new emoji, they couldn't fit them in the basic multilingual plane because it was already stuffed full oh. of all of these other languages, Everything right? Was There's taken. no room. You yeah. can't just say like, oh, all, all the code points are taken. Right. So they had to add them to another plane. Okay. Which is necessarily higher, right? <laughs> so these new ones, like I, I think like sparkling heart, like I think thinking face mm. is a very popular recent emoji, mm -hmm. have code points that are much higher than U plus F, 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 F. They're mm -hmm. like U plus C one three D F, which is, you know, thousands higher and well outside the basic right and the then BMP. this is the, this is the the plane that is not supported by twitter right for unclear reasons mm -hmm. because they could totally render it mm -hmm. i believe i don't believe there are any technical restrictions right because i can definitely tweet a sparkling heart so it goes in tweets that's what's really that was <laughs> what was really annoying about this yeah is i think anything is allowed in tweets uh -huh. but they have much stricter rules for usernames Right, and this is, it's not clear why. Totally unclear why. Yeah. What's your, well, I don't know. It, it seems hard to speculate on why that might be the case. Right, I assume legacy systems, mm -hmm. maybe just normalization. They decided to cut it off at a certain point and never changed it because, let's be honest, my use case is an edge case. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people are running into this. Yeah. Although this conversation is really making me want to like find someone at Twitter who deals with emoji and like storing them and have them on this podcast explain why. <laughs> if that comes out of this appearance on the podcast, I'd be so happy. I, w I would love to talk to someone at Twitter about this. Um, someone actually at, there's this Twitter account called at fake Unicode, which knows an incredible amount about Unicode. So I sort of sent a tweet out into the ether addressing mm -hmm. nobody, wondering why all this stuff was happening. And they responded with detailed rules. Wow. They're actually the person who told me to like look at the BMP, look at these characters in my testing. This is what's allowed and not allowed. That's awesome. Um, and I think they've tweeted at someone at Twitter and that person didn't know. But mm. if someone out there does know, I would love to hear any reasons including just, you know, <laughs> legacy systems Yeah. Uh, as to why this happens. So now that you have kind of gone through this process, you know which class of emoji is not supported. Right, I can test. You can test. So what's your testing process? Um, so what I did was I ran a Ruby script that ran through Unicode code points. That's awesome. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, turns out and sent them one by one to Twitter mm -hmm. as my username. Mm -hmm. I used the um, actually command line Twitter client yep. and just piped it to that and just said, you know, T set name. And if it failed, I recorded that mm -hmm. and found a couple of characters like white space, like weird white space characters, like non-printing paragraph marker that it didn't allow, which like fine, <laughs> that's fair. Mm -hmm. But, and then it all started 
failing after the BMP. So it uh, seems like that rule right. is correct. Yeah. So there were some weird edge cases up to the astral plane. Yes. And after in, the astral in, plane, in the BMP, failed. even some characters yeah. are not allowed. Right. And do you remember which emoji these corresponded to? <laughs> <laughs> I think all the emoji are allowed. It's just white space oh, yeah, that's yeah. not allowed. That's, I see. And so I encoded these rules into Chronicer. Mm -hmm. And so now it runs validations nice. on usernames and I think I think does what Twitter does and strips emoji, strips these characters, then checks for presence. So if it's so if after removing all of these it's a blank string, it says some emoji are not allowed. Right. I would say that my error message is more helpful than Twitter's. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So kind of the upshot of all this is that now your system does validation and you know yes. what to validate for. And I believe has parity with Twitter. Right, right. Unless there are some even weirder edge cases that I don't know about. I did find one other edge case, which is that it allows some characters, but only when surrounded by valid characters. So the characters are not allowed on their own. But if you put what? like letters around them, they are allowed. Okay. Um, and that was a weird one yeah. to find out. Yeah, that's not very actionable. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's, I mean, it's great. It's great that there is like a, an actionable outcome here. And is Chronicle open source? It is. Okay, cool. It's available on, well, we'll put a link in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah. Definitely link to that in the show notes for anyone else who wants to automate <laughs> setting their Twitter username to an emoji. Yes. <laughs> or, or anything else, except emoji in the astral plane. Exactly. And weird edge cases. Exactly. Yeah. Good summary. Okay. I also wanted to talk a little bit about ThoughtBot's blog, Giant Robots, because you're the maintainer of Giant Robots, and you've been involved with Giant Robots for a long time. And Giant Robots has a pretty interesting architecture. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of wanted to talk through the architecture of Giant Robots and talk about the decisions that were made there and and why it is today the way it is. Sure. Um, so historically, mm -hmm. Giant Robots has gone through a lot of changes that I think have been mostly transparent to the end user. It's been at robots.thoughtbot.com for, I think, all the time I've been here. I know mm -hmm. it used to be at giantrobots.thoughtbot.com. But the back end and how we serve things has changed a lot. Right. So it originally was a Tumblr blog and people wrote. I remember that. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so that's still running. I think it, we basically just republish to the Tumblr now for people who are still on Tumblr. Didn't know that. Yep. And people would write draft posts on Tumblr then find the secret private link, share that in chat, and get feedback. Which worked fine, but breaks down when people have to specify. It's hard to, it's hard to specify what you're talking about when you can't do line comments, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be like, oh, no, I meant the other and on line six. Right, so reviewing, reviewing was going difficult. through the, the review process for a blog post, which we do rigorously internally. Yes. Uh, lots of peer review at ThoughtBot is, yeah, it was really difficult yeah. on Tumblr. And maybe relatedly, peer review was much more lax during <laughs> this period. Oh, I see, I see. Um, it became you, more rigorous. <laughs> <laughs> it became much more rigorous. Yeah. Um, people used to publish blog posts without any review. My face yeah. is like one of horror <laughs> right now. I was shocked. <laughs> and then would argue about it in the comments. 
which was, I think, a, tra a tradition. It was, it was a good way to sort of see various people's viewpoints. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, that's one way. Yes, that's one way. <laughs> so the, the, there was a Tumblr. I think after that, it was a middleman blog. Mm -hmm. Okay. So middleman is a static site generator. We would write blog posts, get them reviewed via pull requests, which was one of the big reasons why we switched because we love pull request review. It's something that's familiar for, I think, almost all of the company. And it provided a way to provide much more rigorous review before publishing. It also meant that people did not have to learn Tumblr's, frankly, sometimes confusing interface. Yeah, but it did mean that people had to use Git and yes. GitHub. Yes, so it also let us do some mass editing which was nice because we had uh, everything was just a file. We didn't. We it wasn't hosted on Tumblr. It wasn't an external service, so we could make big sweeping changes much more easily mm -hmm. using tools that we knew. So Middleman had those advantages. We could make large changes. Uh, we had more rigorous and I think easier pull request review, but had one huge downside because Middleman is a static site generator. When we deployed, everything was published so uh, the problem was publishing future posts in a yeah a, so timing right. getting things future out of dating time. posts yeah. we have a very strong internal trello board of ideas for blog posts probably i, I would not be surprised if we had a hundred trello cards that people yeah. are working on or had ideas for once and thus have a strong queue of posts that are not yet published mm -hmm. so uh with middleman we couldn't future date posts because when it's a static site generator, so when it generated posts, it would just generate all of them and all of them would be published at once. Right. Or we could mark them as drafts, but then when it was merged to master, it would just never get published. Yeah. So the deploy process here became kind of painful. It became very painful, both for people running the blog because scheduling was sort of harrowing. Yeah, it sounds really <laughs> stressful. As well as for people writing posts. Yeah. They didn't know when things would be published. Mm. They didn't know if they um, had to do it they themselves. They had to do anything. Yeah. We also had some automated deploy via Travis that didn't actually help because it just added sort of more magic behind the scenes. And it came to a head one day. Uh, so I should say we fixed this via a very gnarly cron task okay. <laughs> that uh, co-written by Derek, actually, oh. who, which rebuilt the blog via a cron task every day so that future dated posts would be published on that day because we just rebuild every 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And so posts would slowly become published as right. we rebuilt. It was, as I said, very gnarly. It uses the Heroku API. It ran like shell commands. It was, it worked, but I don't think anyone, including Derek, was happy about this solution. Yeah, yeah, sounds <laughs> um, a little risky. Exactly. And people, like I said, were still very confused and sort of afraid of writing or publishing on the blog. So we knew we needed another solution. So we decided on the somewhat radical step of splitting up the content repository and the code that serves the blog. Mm -hmm. that, so that means so we write in Markdown with the pull request process. So all the Markdown is in one repository and the Rails app that serves robots.thoughtbot.com is totally different. 
I can go into that more, but right now the general process for how that works is people write a blog post, it gets reviewed via pull request, it merges, it gets merged to master, which then sets a, sends a GitHub webhook with what was just merged to master with the contents of the files and all that to the um, Rails app, That's which has an endpoint. the content. Exactly. Yeah. That Rails app fetches the content and inserts it into database with a specific date. Yeah, and the, the content, it just sends the new content, I imagine. Yes. Committing to master triggers a hook that sends the contents of the most recent commit to yes. um, so it, the engine. Yeah, exactly. So it sends a file, which sends really a file name. Mm-hmm. So then it fetches that file name, I see, I see. reads it all out, and stores it in the database with a specific date. Cool. So people don't need to worry about dating things actually anymore. Because there's just some application logic that says... Chooses the next available date. So we don't publish on the weekends, um, and, we tr- and we don't publish on dates that have another blog post, mm-hmm. which was actually one of the more annoying parts of maintaining the blog, yeah. was finding the next blog post when there were five blog posts that could be possible and figuring out when people had time to merge things. It was a whole thing. Yeah. Now it's just automatically done. Yeah, that's awesome. Are there any pain points with the new system? One of the pain points is that it's complicated. Um, It's a GitHub webhook. There are two different repos. It's sort of turned our blog into a distributed service. Mm -hmm. Uh, We call the Rails app that's serving our blog Maitre D. And if Maitre D rejects something because it fails its validations, those validations are not, are there in Maitre D, they're not in the content repo. So there, there's different logic. Yeah. And yeah, that's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> um, so we need to do, we need to stay on top of logging. We need to stay on top of errors. If we change something in Maitre D, the associated checks in robots.thoughtbot.com, which is the repo where we store the markdown need to be updated as well. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely the biggest downside. Yeah. Is um, complexity. The dependency between the two. Exactly. Yeah. The upside is GitHub's webhooks are incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. So fixing a typo and then merging to master updates the actual blog site in about a second. Yep. It also, uh, we also have Fastly, which is a caching CDN in front of robots.thoughtbot.com. So Maitre D automatically flushes the cache. Every time it publishes. Every time it publishes. Yep. So it flushes the cache for the homepage. And when a specific blog post is updated. Oh, nice. It flushes the cache for that blog post page. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. So it doesn't need to be done manually. It's very nice. Yeah, that seems like an advantage. Well, I guess you could have you could do the same thing with middleman. Yes. We'd probably write that logic in the Travis deploy hook. Yeah. 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 It would be a little messier. It would be a little messier. Yeah. But you could do it. In we could do it. Exactly. Cool. Hi, Tony. Hi. How are you? Good. So for listeners, this is Tony DePasquale. He is, an, well, you do a lot of different things these days, but you're primarily an iOS <laughs> engineer yep. here at ThoughtBot in the San Francisco office. How's your day going? Day's going good, actually. Yeah. Um, learning a lot about Haskell fun stuff. Oh, yeah. What are you uh, working on today? So I think what I'm working on today is probably the actual topic uh, I'm here oh, to discuss. Oh, you're working anyway. on FOMOBot? Yes, I'm working on FOMOBot. Yeah. So I know that you pretty, like the other week, open-sourced FOMOBot pretty this recently. Week. Yeah, this week. This yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's been a long week. 
<laughs> yes, it has. Um, and I wanted to talk more about FOMOBot. And first of all, what is FOMOBot? Let's start right. there. So I guess we can start at what is FOMO. Yes. Um, and FOMO is an acronym for fear of missing out. And it's hard to describe a good definition for it besides just it's that feeling that you get when you know like a bunch of your close friends are like doing something really fun and you're seeing pictures of it come through on Facebook and you're like, ah, shit, man, I can't believe I'm not there. It sucks that I'm not there. Or I guess fear of missing out is kind of like present or like it's going to happen in the future, right? So it's like you know that's going to happen and you're like FOMOing hard because you're like, oh, God, I I can't miss this. It's going to be too awesome. Yeah. That's pretty much what FOMO is. Yeah. I have fear of missing out about this. There's like um, like a team event or like dinner tonight Mm -hmm. that I have to miss out on because family obligations, which are, you know, fine and good and all that, but I'm kind of bummed and I'm experiencing FOMO about this particular event. Yeah. I feel like family obligations are the biggest cause of FOMO. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, that's that's a good example. Um, that and maybe that tiki bar event we had. Oh yeah, that you weren't able to come on. Yeah, I still regret that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I actually have a friend who made up the expression. Uh, Fimo was I missed out, so it's like it's like past tense. <laughs> oh, I see. Nice, I see. So what is Fomo bot? Fomo bot. So it, I don't remember actually how we exactly came to this conclusion, but we decided one day that we'd love a Slack bot to sit inside of all the Slack channels, because we have a ton of them, over mm-hmm. 350 of them. Whoa. And it would sit in the bots, it would sit in the rooms, sorry, and monitor uh, activity. Mm-hmm. And so it basically will alert you when activity spikes. So, and spiked activity means like possibly a good conversation is going on. That's the theory, right? Okay. And so okay. you don't want to miss out on, on good conversations happening but in some rooms. But you also don't want to be in 350 Slack right. channels. Yeah. But you don't necessarily want to be a part of every conversation that's going on yep. in these rooms. So the idea behind FOMOBot is it will figure out the conversations you want to be a part of and let you know. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the grand scheme of what we were trying to do. So yeah, that's that's kind of what it is. And right now it's... It, doesn't have enough data to know whether it's really FOMO for you or just FOMO for anyone, you know? So right now the the key metric that you're measuring is activity. In, yeah. And, and activity, what does that mean? It means like the rate at which messages are being That's exactly sent it. That's exactly in a given it. channel. We're measuring, to get all mathy, we're measuring the density <laughs> uh-huh. of the rate of messages over a period of time. Yep. And so we look at um, the last 20 messages and we basically divide the time differential between the last message and the first message or the latest and the earliest uh, over 20, which is the size of our queue. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's just dividing the number of messages over the time differential. And that's like the rate of messages for that time differential. Uh-huh. And if it's over, I think I just set the threshold to like five, whatever that means, five uh, messages per minute, I think it mm-hmm. is. And if we surpass that, then maybe there's FOMO. Mm-hmm. How often does this run? I mean, how, how, how frequently are you doing that calculation? Every message that gets sent to one of the rooms FOMOBot is monitoring, it recalculates to see if uh, potentially okay. is FOMO. Okay, cool. And so you have to invite FOMOBot to a room so mm-hmm. you can like decide which rooms he's in and not, not in. Um, that's not a big deal. And then, so like for instance, we don't want him in client rooms, right? Yeah, that would be awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Bunch so, of people I mean, trying he to won't, join he won't a... post anything to a room. Yeah. I keep saying he also, it's just a bot. It <laughs> it won't post anything to a room. Yeah. So so it'll only post to its FOMO room, which is the you know FOMO channel. Yeah, but the irony, if FOMOBot is telling you you're missing out on this amazing conversation in the X client project channel and you can't join. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not on the team. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny, actually. It can it can cause FOMO, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, 
So yeah, that's what it's doing now. So it's just really firing on rate of messages. Mm -hmm. um, how is that? Like, I haven't used it actually because sure. I don't have Slack FOMO specifically. That's fair. Um, <laughs> but how would you say as a user, how is it working for you? Is that is that algorithm pulling you into the channels you expect to be pulled into when they're like then there's a lot of activity. So right now it's only in maybe like five or six channels. I'm trying to keep the sample size small mm. so I can easily validate whether it should have gone off in those channels. And they're all channel. They're all channels I'm already in anyway. So um, if I'm away from my console for a while, I can like go into FOMO room and see the rooms that spiked. Maybe check those out first. Mm -hmm. But I'll see all those rooms have, have activity anyway from Slack like notifying me. But that's kind of like still in the testing phases. Like I want to make sure that the events that are happening are legit. And it's already led to a couple enhancements in the algorithm, which I can talk about. But I think it actually is pretty good. And right now you have to hang out in the FOMO room. And when it gets posted or when an event happens, it posts mm -hmm. in the FOMO room and it says, you know, like, hey, go check out okay. San Francisco. So just to summarize what like the core of the user experience is, you join this FOMO room yep. and for whatever other channels FOMOBot has been enabled, whenever activity spikes in one of those channels, then a message is sent to the FOMO room saying there's, you know, a spike in activity in this channel, go check it out. Yep, that's okay. pretty much it, yeah. Cool. And uh, so yeah, so it's it's been working. I think my end goal is kind of to have it in most channels mm -hmm. and then unsubscribe from all those channels, like leave all those channels mm -hmm. and, and only then join. only go in a lot of them when I'll stay in probably some of the ones I care about. Like I'll stay in, you know, San Francisco room because that's like our local one. Yep. I'll stay in um, general because I have to. Mm -hmm. I'll stay in, um, I'll <laughs> stay in you know, like Xcoders because that's like our, like I'll stay in those core ones, but um, I'll probably try to leave a lot of the ones that I don't normally interact with yeah. and try to rely on FOMO, but uh, just for those and see how that mm -hmm. works. What do you think, like, I'm trying to think of, um, channels where the usage is low enough that it would never spike so yes there's definitely a chance to not spike ever right um, okay that's what but I that's probably just like a crappy room you don't yeah. want to be in anyway you know <laughs> <laughs> well i was thinking of like the we have a channel for music that i'll occasionally pop in i mean i'm in it but mm -hmm. i never read it but occasionally there's something in there that is worth my time fomobot is in music and it does uh have events every now and then oh really it does yeah. okay yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. all right um, actually that's one channel that I probably won't go in unless FOMOBOT yeah. says something's happening, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is kind of funny. So that that's, one might actually be a good test case for me at yeah. least to yeah, see if I use it. That's the one that came to mind for me when you were describing like quitting channels and only right. joining when there's something interesting going on. It actually spiked yesterday or two days ago on a very like so accurate occasion. Um, one of our coworkers in New York city, Sid, um, was at a client office or something and um, Justin Bieber walked in. What? Yeah. I missed and, this. Yeah, well, you should have been in the FOMO channel. <laughs> oh my God, you're right, you're right. <laughs> right, this is why it's so good. Because, um, so he messaged in the music channel and was like, guys, I just made eye contact with Justin Bieber. And he was like freaking out, it was so funny. And I, I happened to be in there, so I didn't um, I didn't happen to see FOMOBOT happen first, but it was the perfect scenario for yeah. FOMOBOT because that's something that like you would totally miss out on otherwise, but definitely had like a really high spike in traffic. Oh my gosh, you for may that have just event. sold me on FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for Justin Bieber, right? <laughs> well, for the um, you know the brush with greatness edge case. Right, right, exactly. Greatness so, in quotes. Yeah, that's kind of that's that was actually a really good use case. I should probably have that in like a use case study <laughs> yeah, or something. Totally. 
Yeah. So uh, tell me about how you implemented Fumblebot. What is it written in and why? So we wrote it in Haskell, and we did that because um, a lot of our coworkers in this office and a lot of coworkers actually in um, other offices are very interested in learning Haskell and becoming better at it. Right. And so uh, this happened during our um, Christmas hackathon mm-hmm. or winter That's hackathon, right. whatever yeah. it was. And um, one of our coworkers was moving from the Boston office to the Austin office. And so Gordon. Oh, yeah. And so um, he was in town. Yep. Uh, And then he's also one of the guys on on our team that is interested in Haskell. And Gabe was here, which I think you just talked to earlier. Yep. Gabe and I were just speaking. So it was us three. And we we, that's that's how the joke came about. One of us like made the joke. We're like, let's just do this. It'd be hilarious. And um, we did it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah, we just sat in this room basically for two days straight and just tried to figure out Haskell. And it was a lot of manual um, using WebSocket APIs, using HTTP APIs to hit the uh, hit the Slack endpoint. But more recently, Slack API is now a Haskell library, so I can just totally I just totally ripped out like all of that code, and I just use this Slack API Haskell library, which does everything for me. Oh wow! So that already yeah. exists. Yeah, it's not something you had to write. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. It didn't exist when we started, but, but it, it exists now. Yeah. Oh, neat. So, I, I wonder who made it. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I can't remember the name. Yeah. But it's good. Yeah. It's good. Um, and so, yeah, we're using that now. And it's like lighter weight, and I've been learning a lot. Yeah. So you mainly used Haskell because people were interested in writing some Haskell in, yep. and writing something that would be in production. Yep. But... It's also fast. Yes. Which helps. It is. Haskell is faster um, than interpreted languages because it's imp- compiled, right? But I think the major thing was in learning for me and for possibly others here too is that it's nice to have a project that you're excited about and you care about to try to learn a new language. I need that with almost any language I learn, mm-hmm. right? If I'm not excited about a personal project or something, I won't take the time to learn the language or I'll read a book on it and not really grasp it. Yeah. Um, so I think that was important for all of us to have kind of like something to apply to. Even as silly as it was, it was like fun, you know? Yeah. So Cool. Where is it hosted? It's hosted on Heroku. Mm-hmm. We initially used Docker for compiling and for deployment and development, but we've moved off of Docker to just stack. And basically Haskell what has a... Stack? I don't know what stack So is. Haskell has a um, package manager called Cabal. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes. And it kind of sucks. Yes. And it's a little clunky. So the company, FP Complete, started uh, trying to wrap it around this other tool called Stack. And so Stack is this package manager that wraps Cabal. And it takes away a lot of the shittiness of Cabal and uh, makes it a lot, lot easier to use and one of the biggest things is like caching dependencies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So don't try to reinstall everything if mm-hmm. you change one thing. So that's really nice. And then we do use Docker. We have like this Docker setup for deployment. So it will compile the um, Haskell app in a um, Heroku environment, which is Cedar 14 or whatever their stack is. And then it will deploy that slug that basically compiled executable to Heroku. Yeah. Cool. That sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah, it works out really well. And we have like just a few nice scripts um, just wrapping it. So it's just like it's easy as like bin build, bin run, bin deploy. Like it's so easy. Nice. So that's really nice. Makes work in Haskell a lot nicer. Well, I mean, it sounds like I, I know you, you have written like you have experience with Haskell prior to this project. But aside from learning Haskell and the tooling for this project, what was the most challenging aspect technically? 
besides learning Haskell and the tooling, you know, I think uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to detect FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A yeah. lot of silly time. Um, and I was like, I was really deep into like research papers for a little while. Oh, really? Yeah. That's oh, really yeah. Cool. I was, I was research. It was, it was cool, oh. but it was also like research papers. Yeah. So there were a lot of really cool methods and there are a lot of companies, including uh, companies like Twitter and Facebook that have published articles on the algorithms they use, mm. but they get so much traffic that they can use time series analysis, which is basically every second you measure how many things are happening mm. at that second. Okay. And so it's a number. Yeah. So you, every second you have a different number. Yeah. But we have plenty of seconds in our Slack channel where nothing's happening. Yeah. Right. For sure. So they have every second on Something Twitter. There's tons of tweets going out, so they can easily yeah. measure every second. So since we can't measure every second because there'd be a ton of zeros, mm-hmm. we can't really use the time series analysis tools that they use, and it's too bad because all these time series analysis algorithms are like super proven and like tons of people use them. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we're such a small sample size, it's not appropriate. It do- I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not great. Yeah. You can do something called like interpolation and you can interpolate the in-between curve between the two points of that you have data at, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still not great. Yeah. I found that this density thing was just a lot nicer. Yeah. So the problem is with the density thing is you need to store a certain amount of messages so you can see the end time and the, uh, the recent and latest times. But with the time series analysis stuff, you just store like one number because yeah. you just store the moving average and you can just keep recalculating the moving average, mm-hmm. which is really nice. So it's a lot less data to store. Mm-hmm. But 20 timestamps isn't a lot, a lot of data, you know, so Haskell can easily keep it in memory and it's not like terrible on performance. So yeah. it's fine. That's cool. What's uh, next for FOMOBot? Any big like, I don't know, bugs you need to fix or enhancements you'd like to make? So just this week, I finished an enhancement that improved the uh, detection algorithm by making sure that at least three people are part of a conversation before it will um, cause an event. Oh, cool. Um, just that kind of prevents like just one-on-one one conversations that just yeah. happen. Like if someone specifically asks someone a question yeah. and it's just them talking, yeah. it won't spike on that. Also, I added... Um, so right now or before this, if someone just like typed a bunch of messages in a row and was like, hi, enter how, enter R, enter you, enter, like mm-hmm. that kind of thing, it, that would spike it because yep. if someone is typing a bunch of messages fast. So now I check to make sure that the user is unique from the last user that posted. So if the last user that posted is the same as this message coming in, it just replaces it as opposed to popping on the stack mm-hmm. or pushing on the stack. It just replaces the top of the stack. So that way it's like one person can't just like enter a bunch of time and cause FOMO. So that, those were two enhancements. And then now I'm working on having FOMOBot be private. So you can have him uh, or you can have it text you. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It can be him. <laughs> you can have uh, FOMOBot <laughs> basically interact with you through um, direct message as opposed to being in the FOMO channel. Oh, nice. And so now you'll be able to add preferences. Yeah. So instead of just getting alerted by every channel, you can say FOMOBot only alert me if the music channel spikes. Cool. Cool. And it will directly DM you when that happens. Oh, very cool. So I'll keep the, I'm going to keep the FOMO channel around and I'll have it keep posting things to there yeah. for like everything. But the preferences will let you like focus in on what you care about. And it will also, since it's a DM, it's like a little bit more in your face when the message comes through, mm-hmm. right? Like you'll see that like as your notification Yep. is like a red one instead of a, instead of like just the highlighted um, channel. Yep. So yeah. Wow. That's really cool. The future... The future, um, the future of FOMOBOT. 
I have this like lofty goal in my head of like using machine learning learning algorithms mm-hmm. to like figure out what FOMO is for you. And so <laughs> the the biggest what thing does for FOMO like, mean to you? Yeah, exactly. The yeah. biggest thing about machine learning is like you need a positive feedback loop for the machine to learn, yeah. right? And so I guess you being a part of a conversation would be like that positive loop. So uh-huh. you have to like monitor conversations and see when you reply to things. Mm-hmm. And then it would like, I guess it would take like a snapshot of the people around you that you're replying to. Mm-hmm. And I guess my theory right now is that FOMO isn't necessarily based on the conversation, but it's about the people. the people who are part of the yeah. conversation. Mm-hmm. So if you're always messaging or replying around the same kind of people, yeah. maybe FOMOBot can learn that and then alert you when those people are in a part of a conversation that's spiking. Yep. So that's my theory. We'll see uh, when that happens. I have literally the slightest idea about machine learning oh. algorithms. I read like part of those papers is like when I was reading that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was like, this is really cool. Yeah. But um, definitely not MVP. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not MVP. <laughs> but it's cool that there's like this broader design question of what is FOMO right exactly (laughs) what is it how do you model FOMO how and is it different for different people right and how do people give you feedback on what FOMO like what they have FOMO about right yeah it's yeah it's like this really silly thing that I kind of weirdly and really strangely think it's really interesting and like scientifically though you know yeah there are definitely people researching this kind of stuff because I'm sure this is huge for social networks Mm -hmm. you know like Facebook Twitter etc and I'm sure they all have tons of information on what this is, and they're definitely doing all their own experiments, mm-hmm. but they probably don't share a lot of it because that's not. like, I'm sure Facebook's wall is 100% this algorithm, you know? Yeah. I think that's all the time we have right now. Cool. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, that was really, really interesting. Hi, Amanda. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good. So now I am joined by Amanda Hill who is an Android developer here in our San Francisco office. Amanda, you've been here for like a month or two now? I think a little bit over two months, yeah. Right. How are you? <laughs> I'm wonderful. Um, I just got put on a client project last week. Nice. So my first one, which is very exciting. Um, in two and a half months, I have been in now two pro- product design sprints. and Wow, that's a lot. Yes, it is a lot, especially since they were both very similar. Um, in the products that they were, Mm -hmm. uh, or they are, I guess. So yeah, I'm very quickly becoming very, very good at client management. That's great. That's really great. Uh, I think a lot of people might not get to do more than two design sprints in a year, you know, just depending on how things shake out. So I feel like I've filled my quota for the year. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. (laughs) So I know that you've been doing a lot of work on, um, Tropos lately. Can you tell me what Tropos is? Yes. Uh, Tropos is a weather app um, that was originally built and designed um, by ThoughtBot developers and designers for iOS. um, And I am working on the Android version. Cool. And I think this is something you kind of picked up when you joined. Yes. Um, So about a month before I joined, uh, Kelly joined ThoughtBot as well um, in the Denver office and also was not immediately put on client work. Mm -hmm. Um, So she began working on it um, in her investment time and then was like pretty quickly put on a project. So I kind of picked up where she left off. Have you been working with any of the other Android developers at ThoughtBot on this, or have you been kind of on your own for this? Uh, Kind of on my own because they've been on client work, and Mm -hmm. so I've been doing this Monday through Friday uh, where they've been on actual other paying work um, Monday through Thursday. So 
they've definitely been reviewing my pull requests and um okay when yeah. they have free time we yeah. talk about it um but day to day mostly me yeah yeah i was that's uh, what i was wondering actually is how code review is getting done because i know the mobile team is pretty distributed yes at that point. <laughs> um yeah it's actually it's something that um the Android team just had a meeting about recently um, is how do you, how do we as a consulting kind of agency where our business model is such that we're almost never going to work together. I think for web developers, it's different. Um, there's usually more than one uh, web developer on a project. Yeah. So you have the opportunity to work closely together. But in our situation where we don't, just because mobile is expensive, um, we almost never will be on a project together. And so how can we kind of best help and support each other? Mm -hmm. Because when you're on a project together, you have all the context. And so you know what the trade-offs are, you know why decisions are being made, and you can kind of talk it out. It's a lot harder when you're not on the project together to both ask your question and give all the context so yes. they can really help you kind of talk about you know, make a trade-off decision with like understanding the full picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think my colleague, Chris, who I'm working with on my current client project, was on vacation last week, week before. And I was in a position of having to find somebody to do code review for me. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> there's just yep. so much more overhead when you oh, yeah. have to educate someone on the context around the, you know, the domain specific knowledge and why you're like, why you're using this jQuery plugin instead of that jQuery plugin. <laughs> yes. And it also becomes hard um, when they're kind of cool, interesting things that you decide. Um, so for Turbo specifically, it's a pretty basic app. It's supposed to be a weather app for humans because mm. we're robots. Mm. Um, <laughs> And it's just a lot of really subtle, beautiful animations and kind of views. And in Android, and I think on either kind of mo mobile platform, that stuff gets really complicated. And if you're going to start doing custom views, you have a lot of boilerplate code. And then when you start customizing things, it becomes very difficult for someone else to kind of come in and see what's boilerplate versus what you've updated or edited. And so feedback becomes really difficult. Mm -hmm. And then the file size, like some of my pull requests are humongous. Oh, really? Um, because it's an app from nothing. And so right. trying to keep them small, like if I'm just adding a custom view, the custom view file alone might be 800 lines, and then I actually have to implement it. So wow. it becomes really difficult to <laughs> review, and it's not <laughs> fair. But like making it smaller also becomes equally as challenging. Right. Yeah, that's a lot more lines than yes than my typical pull request. Yeah, just because you know Ruby is not that verbose. Yeah, and I think when you combine the kind of verbosity and unnecessary uh, language components of Java with Android boilerplate code, it just mm -hmm. becomes a mess. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like there are organizational or team level pain points that. You're, you guys are working on addressing as a team, but is there anything technically that you found challenging working on Tropos? It sounds like the animations have been yes, a lot of work. Uh, it's interesting um, as an Android developer in general, I feel like we kind of get side shafted when it comes to design <laughs> things. Um, there's also both platforms give you different stuff kind of for free out of the box. iOS and Apple was built the hardware itself is consistent, and so they can optimize for hardware in the way they build their software. Mm -hmm. And on Android, that is just not the case. Right. Um, I heard at a conference recently there are 40,000 or over 40,000 unique Android software running on unique, like the combination of software and hardware is like somewhere in the 40,000s. Whoa, my face. Which was, is insane. I'm aghast. That's amazing. Yes. So things are done very differently. And so because this was originally just kind of like build tropas for Android, 
were kind of just copying at least the design. And a lot of the design for the iOS version was based on iOS paradigms and iOS best practices. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of conversations around, is this a Tropos design or is this just an iOS design? And where can we kind of make it the Android version versus where should we kind of stick to the brand? Right. Yeah, that's one thing I was wondering about is I don't know much about the comparative challenges of developing on for iOS versus developing for Android, but I do know that they're pretty different. Yes. And to me, it seems like it would be difficult to do a one-to-one port yeah. of any product. And, you don't, and I don't think you want to do a port because mm-hmm. your users are different and they expect different things. For example, on Android, um, it's really common for navigation to be at the top. And on iOS, it's really common for navigation to be at the bottom. Okay. And so as an Android user, you expect things to be at the top. And so yeah. while as a developer, you're like, you're looking at an app and saying, okay, I'll just copy it. Most of your users will be like, this is interesting and new. Classic <laughs> kind of examples are Instagram and Instagram keeps their navigation at the bottom on the Android app, just like their iOS app, because they feel it's strong enough to the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a bunch of apps that if you look at are identical across platforms, because I think they feel that their brand is stronger than the frameworks or the paradigms they're working with. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's respectful to follow the kind of practices of the framework you're building on. Apple Music is a really good example. Um, It's an Apple app Uh and they built it for Android and they hired a, I think it was an agency actually, um, or some development shop to build it and they followed material design guidelines. And I just think that's a super respectful way to approach development and Mm -hmm. to approach kind of UI software because there's a reason why Google came out with material design guidelines. And if it's an Android device, it should follow those practices. Yeah. And I don't know, I have to imagine that the users will find it easier to use. Absolutely, and yeah. And there will be more users. <laughs> yeah, I have an Android phone, and every time I touch an iPhone, um, the simple things like the keyboard touch zones mm-hmm. are different, are slightly different on my Android phone from iPhone, so mm-hmm. I can't type well. I become very, very like a grandma almost. <laughs> um, and user interactions, there's different things you expect. Just like if you gave kind of your grandparents your phone and they wouldn't know how to use it, the same thing happens. So the more you can follow the patterns of the users, the better. Yeah. So are there any specific features or views in Tropos where you've had to kind of make decisions about this? Uh, Kind of. Um, Unfortunately, at this point, we've kind of decided to keep a lot of the Tropos things um, because we felt they were strong to the brand. Um, So on the iOS app, there is a really beautiful pull to refresh animation, Mm -hmm. which has all the Tropos colors and it kind of animates and expands and that pulling down um, on a list or on any sort of view and then having it bounce back up is something that Apple has actually patented. Um, So on Google phones or Android phones, when you um, pull down, it's actually a circle that comes down on top of the content to kind of indicate a refresh Yeah, I have an Android, so this is familiar to me. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but you'll notice that like the content or lists don't typically shift on Android, and that's because of Apple's ridiculous ability to patent software. Uh, So that had to be customized, and that was a very long process. Um, And then all the individual components of the animation animation and I think UI in general is easier on iOS because they give so much of it to you for free whereas on Android you get a lot more what I'll call like mathematical truths Mm -hmm. so you'll get numbers and you'll get relative positions and things that you can then use to build beautiful animations but you don't get kind of default implementations as um, frequently as I think you do on iOS. Mm-hmm. There aren't like components out of the box that you can just Yeah, there plug are in some, but it's not quite at the level of, I think, Apple's. Yeah. So it sounds like you're doing a fair amount of user experience design. Yes. I, yes. Have you been working with ThoughtBot designers at all on this or like soliciting their feedback? Or what is the relationship between 
Um, I think this is a different case because it already exists. So yeah. I have a video on my computer uh-huh. of the iOS animation, and I basically just play that over and over and over, <laughs> and I scrub okay. through it really slowly okay. because it's beautiful and it's really nice. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to copy that. Yeah. And I think the other thing about the app, which we kind of, I definitely, we definitely want to stay away from, was kind of the word port. Um, I hate that word. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, again, coming back to the respect thing, different languages have different things available to them and different ways of implementing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're actually writing the Tropos app in both Java and Kotlin. And so the difference between the Swift slash Objective-C app and the Java app and the Kotlin app are all pretty different. I think they share some similar functionality in like the Turbos app tells you the weather relative to the day before's weather. Right. Um, so that kind of structure of like today is warmer than yesterday. How we determine warmer is all the same. Because mm-hmm. at some point in every language you have if, st- if yeah, statements. Yeah, you have but, some math to do. Um, right. Yeah. But in the Android app, we've architected it following kind of a model view presenter pattern, which is very trendy in Android right now. Mm. iOS is much more of an MVC pattern, I'd say. Mm. So it's different for the language and for our current, like the implementation that we thought made sense for us. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Kotlin. Can you talk a little bit about your feelings about Kotlin and the feelings that other people at ThoughtBot have about Kotlin? Yeah, sure. Um, so Kotlin is a statically typed language um, that compiles on the JVM, which means that it's perfectly compatible with Java. It was written and developed by IntelliJ, um, which is the backing IDE for Android Studio, which is the official IDE for Android development. It's gained a lot of popularity. They've definitely targeted Android developers as kind of their biggest use case for the language. Um, So they've definitely made some optimizations and changes to the language for what would make sense for Android developers, which is really nice. I think people are excited about it in the Android community. I think after Swift came out, um, there was this kind of massive realization (laughs) in the mobile world Uh like we don't have to just live in these super outdated languages we don't have to suffer exactly it doesn't have to be this way yeah Yeah. um so there's a lot of people who like to call kind of kotlin the swift to android um i don't think it's quite like that in that google has not officially endorsed (laughs) it um i'm not sure that they ever will to be honest right Um, it's a big difference yeah so it's nice that it's backwards compatible so we can use it which is excellent. I really like it. I think at ThoughtBot, we all really enjoy it, and there's a ton of support behind it. Um, I think because the iOS team made the switch from Objective-C to Swift, we're all learners here, and I think there's a ton of support for anything that would be seen as new or upcoming or interesting. Kotlin also shares a bunch of language features with Scala. So like on the Kotlin FAQ page, there's a ton of as compared to Java questions and as compared Mm. to Scala questions. Uh Um, And... Joe Ferris is a big Scala fan, um, so he's very excited about Kotlin. So right. <laughs> kind of trickled. The support trickles down from okay, there. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Joe Ferris, the CTO of ThoughtBot, is apparently a Kotlin fan. Yes. Sorry, Scala fan. Well, both, I think, now. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining me. That's it for today. I want to thank Gabe, Tony, and Amanda for joining me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 64. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. You can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed.